Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Little Miss Sunshine and we are talking about it with the fantastic Carolyn Kendrick. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Little Miss Sunshine is a 2006 American tragicomedy road film. I'm reading straight from Wikipedia. Tragicomedy is their word, not mine. Tragicomedy road film and feature film directorial debut of the husband-wife team of Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. The screenplay was written by first-time writer Michael Arndt. The film stars Greg Kinnear, Steve Carell, Tony Collette, Paul Dano, Abigail Breslin, and the late, great Alan Arkin. Carolyn Kendrick, first and foremost, is a tremendous musician. She is also the producer of this show and of You're Wrong About. Uh, she has a new song called Lullaby. Uh, it's a cover of a chick's tune. We actually played it at the end of last week's episode. You can check it out there or better yet, you can buy it on Bandcamp or stream it. Carolyn's not just a friend of the pod. She is the pod. How is it going out there in your world, everybody, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are you reading? What are you watching? What is bringing you joy? Let us know at You Are Good Pod on <laughs> this social media network, formerly known as Twitter. Let us know on Instagram. Let us know on Blue Sky. We are uh, we're migrating, I guess, as uh, social media takes different shapes. And uh, we're seeing what sticks. So reach out to us. Let us know how you're doing. And don't forget that you, my friend, you who's listening right now, you, my friend, are good. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. With that support, you get bonus episodes. You get to... Uh, Get to hear our thoughts on things that aren't just movies. We are talking a lot about the Lecterverse over in the uh, bonus episode territory. We are talking about in Just Like That. Uh, it's a big year for Hannibal and Carrie. <laughs> we also have a couple of really great lists of and just like that fanfics these are concepts for fan fiction that sarah has come up with and she's just kind of come up with one-liner concepts i love them so much she, we just posted another it started with 32 and they were extremely well received and then sarah did 32 more let me read to you a few of these uh recent fanfics two shay has rabies <laughs> that's my favorite Seven, Miranda dates Francis McDormand. Fourteen, Carrie is attacked by birds. I love these. So this is the sort of thing you get over uh, on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. Actually, the fanfics are available to everyone just if you want to poke around and see what's going on on our Patreon. But uh, yeah, you get bonus episodes. And thanks so much for supporting the show and making this whole thing possible. It means so much to us that we are uh, able to do this and we're able to do this because you help make the show possible by subscribing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A quick content warning for this episode. We talk about suicide as it's a thing that comes up in the movie. And we also talk, we also talk about issues related to uh, eating, to family making you feel guilt about what you eat and what things might come of that. So uh, please know that going in that we will talk about those things. And if those are things that you're not ready to deal with today, it's totally fine. We have a bunch of other episodes that don't require content warnings up top. Hey, have you given us a rating on Apple Podcasts? Uh, please do that if you haven't yet. Please do it if it's been a while. You can uh, give us a rating and say some of the things you enjoy about the show. We appreciate that. It means a lot when you do that. It helps other folks know that we exist, know that there is a feelings podcast about movies out there in the world for them and that we are that podcast. So thanks to everyone who rates us on Apple Podcasts. All right. I think that's enough of that for now. Let's get into this episode. Let's talk Little Miss Sunshine with Little Miss Sunshine herself, Carolyn Kendrick. Hello, super freak Sarah Marshall. Hello, the kind of girl you don't take home to mother, Alex Steed. <laughs> did you notice that a character is drinking out of the Hamburglar glasses? Yes, I did, McDonald's Alex. Yes, I did. It was Paul Dano. Yes, I did. <laughs> I, 
I was like, this moment is for me. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm great. I just watched, I think, one of the most important gunkle movies of our time, Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> it is an extremely important gunkle movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is important because I believe all three of us are canonically gunkles. <laughs> This is yeah. the truth. Um, we watched Little Miss Sunshine and we watched it because uh, our wonderful producer, Carolyn Kendrick, wanted to watch Little Miss Sunshine and talk about it with us. Hello, Carolyn Kendrick. Hello, everyone. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Carolyn, I haven't seen... I saw this movie actually earlier this year, but I hadn't seen it forever uh, before that. And watching it, knowing that this is something that you wanted to watch and discuss made me see you in a whole different light. <laughs> mm, I'm curious to hear how. Can you tell us what your relationship with this movie is and why you wanted to talk about it with us? So this was the first like cool indie movie I ever watched. Because, mm. you know, I grew up only having access to like big blockbusters and like whatever was making like the most money at the movie theater. And I we were not really a movie watching family. However, I have some very cool uncles who are not gunkles, unfortunately. Strunkles. Strunkles. Yeah. <laughs> I have a very cool aunt and uncle who I love very, very much and who I've lived with kind of on and off throughout my life. And they are movie people. And whenever I would get to spend time with them, that's like how I would learn about cool stuff that was happening in like the indie world, I suppose. And this is one of the movies that they introduced me to. This was like the second one that they told me about. And the first one was Moulin Rouge, also a favorite. Ah, oh, Moulin <laughs> Rouge, my heart. But also, I feel like I relate to every single one of these characters. Sometimes a movie just strikes you because it's like close to home in a way that helps you metabolize things. Before we go further, Sarah, do you want to uh, do you want to jump into the cute little yellow Volkswagen van and uh, take us on a journey through Little Miss Sunshine? Yes. Also, did this movie aid to the creation of van life culture? I think so. <laughs> totally. I bet it totally did. I thought a lot about how brilliant the use of this van was, because without this van as like a icon of the family running after it to get it started, I don't know that it would have been as successful as it was. Mm, that's true. It's really like a very effective plot vehicle. Ha <laughs> 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 It is. <laughs> but yeah, so Little Miss Sunshine, we open with a family of people all establishing their own pursuits. Um, everyone is working really, really hard at something. Grandpa is doing heroin. He actually isn't working hard at that, but he is doing heroin, though. He's working hard at having fun while he can. That's true. Yeah. He's on a quest. He's going hard at it. Yeah. And Grandpa is, of course, Alan Arkin. And then we have uh, his son, Greg Kinnear, who's a, like an aspiring Tony Robbins motivational speaker who is motivationally mm -hmm. speaking to a dimly lit room of a large room with only a few people in it. And he's got some, like, quiz kid Donnie Smith energy from Magnolia. He really <laughs> So does. Greg Kinnear is trying to be a motivational speaker. He's trying to make a deal go through with Stan Grossman, which Alex, as you pointed out in our group chat, is a reference to Fargo. Mm -hmm. Then we see, I think we actually first see our Little Miss Sunshine herself, Abigail Breslin, practicing her routine watching pageants actually mm -hmm. mom is trying to hold the family together everybody wants something and tony collette wants to hold the family together yeah and then paul dano is working out he's taken a vow of silence he's reading his nietzsche we don't know what's going on with him and then tony collette goes and picks up the our gunkle in question steve carell from the hospital she is picking him up after a suicide attempt because she wants him to continue to wish to be alive has him bunk with a teenage boy who isn't talking to anybody because that's just mm -hmm. the available room they have. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and we have dinner and I feel like we should talk about this dinner scene for a second. Oh yeah. This dinner scene is like what it felt like to be alive in 2006. It's like, <laughs> actually it feels like a little bit more 2008 for me at least because it feels sort of like recession core. Yeah. Everybody is like 
barely scraping it together. Everybody is obviously stressed. There's like KFC and then there's there's a side salad made, um, which I think is just like such a classic dinner. Just mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know. How do you feel about that? Totally. I feel like especially when you're growing up, you like you really learn the tone of the day through the dinner. Oh, like totally. if it happens and how it happens and what happens inside of it. And then we have the popsicle dessert. And I love that it's about like Tony Collette being like clearly spread unbelievably thin, but like holding it together and being pleasant and making dinner and making everybody sit down because it's like we're still having dinner. Right, right. Exactly. I'd be really curious to hear from the audience what their dinner routines were growing mm-hmm. up because oh, totally. they're all so specific and somehow revealing in one way or another and like i remember you know you'd go to your your friends houses for their dinner and you'd see their exotic dining rituals yes. <laughs> and ours was we ate at 5 30 mm-hmm. every day which is oh a very old person time to eat which is not surprising because my dad was old and we would watch i think at 5 30 hard copy was on <laughs> so we'd watch hard copy or the people's court and we'd eat dinner and then uh, depending on what time it was, if it rolled into six o'clock, then that's when the actual news comes up. And then eventually Entertainment Tonight would come mm-hmm. up. It was all centered around television in our house. Yeah, we we're always more of like a 8.30, 9, 10 p.m. kind of family. Wowzers. That's very European. Musicians are very European. But, well, not these musicians, but <laughs> but, the, but it was like we would often have like rehearsals until eight and then you'd eat after. We ate at seven and we had to sit down at the table until like my senior year of high school when my mom gave up and let us all watch Jeopardy. Uh, (laughs) This scene, this dinner scene, not only just like the food that they're eating, but like the way that they're interacting, the little like brief sentences that they're saying to one another really like give you the full portrait of everybody's relationship to each other. And that's what dinner does, you know? Right. Dinner is like a little play every night that tells totally. you everybody's relationship. This movie is great. It's very simple because we get them all as individuals in the beginning. Yeah, right. And then we put them together in the dinner scene in order to see what their dynamic is. And it's discordant. Yes, it's uh, it's wonderful. And it is it does feel like maybe like a Peter and the Wolf kind of thing where like you get each instrument individually and then they all... We hear them together. Totally. They get tuned up. And then we establish some some stakes, which is that Olive, the main character, was in a regional Little Miss Sunshine competition where she was the runner up. But then we learn in a very mid 2000s joke that the winner was disqualified, something to do with diet pills. And Olive is now the winner. She's going to nationals. They're going to go to Redondo Beach, California. So good. What is Redondo Beach? I feel like that's a funny location in a way I don't get. Redondo Beach is where Charles Bukowski lived for a long time. They're going to Bukowski Town. And that sums it up. (laughs) So, yeah. So they just they're like. In a scene that was very stressful to me, the parents are walking around slamming things and arguing about how to get there. (laughs) A similar stake setup is also that our Tony Robbins wannabe father is waiting to hear back on a surefire book that he has that is that his uh, agent says is absolutely going to sell. And they're just waiting on the news for that. And I like I think your assessment that he's a Tony Robbins is more charitable than mine, which is like if he had succeeded at this very moment, he would have become a Jordan Peterson. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, he wouldn't have that weird little accent, at least. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) But also just to, to point this out, I do feel like this is a very important theme in the movie. Greg Kinnear's motivational speaking is based on these nine steps. And it's basically like if you're a loser, how to become a winner. You know, let's just keep that in mind. Like, I think that's yeah. the big framing of of this movie is like, yeah. are you a loser? Are you a winner? What does it mean to be both of those things or neither or, you know, one or the other? I agree, Carolyn. I feel like that's kind of the overarching theme here. And also implicitly the question of like America being a culture oriented toward like being a family of winners and like the American dream totally. allegedly being that each generation will be more successful, like financially and career-wise than the last and at like winning the game of life. But really, 
I think the actual American dream is that each generation can get less traumatized than the last. That would be nice. That's my dream. A thought that occurred to me at the end of this movie that was very moving to me is that this is a, a movie about a family with a high percentage of depressed people in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, all, it's about how, like, depressed people have something to contribute. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way <laughs> so, to So, yeah, it. they head out on their road trip. They're like, plot point, plot point, Tony Collette can't drive the clutch. Everybody has to come. We can't leave Uncle Frank alone. It looks like this ragtag group of strivers is going to have to head out across the American West. It's just so great. It's just so exciting when a road movie starts. And so they're on the road and it's beautiful. It looks like the Radiator Springs Racers ride at Cars Land. Oh, totally. It's like they're in this beautiful VW bus. And we learn also that Uncle Frank, played by Steve Carell's life, spiraled out of control because he was in love with a graduate student of his. Is that right? Yeah, who who fell in love with the foremost second foremost the second foremost Proust scholar and Greg Schneider is like, and who's the the first foremost Proust scholar in America? Like that would be me. (laughs) (laughs) It's so devastating. Also, I like like just the fact that he's a grad student also is like so devastatingly losery and like. This yeah. gunkle is so endearing because you know he is just like a hot mess express. Like, that's so irresponsible and unethical. And yeah. like, he obviously should have lost his job because of that. But we don't really know if that's if that's why. We just know that he was spiraling because of it. And I love the sequence in which, <laughs> in which we are learning all of this because they're explaining to Abigail Breslin why he tried to kill himself against Greg Kinnear's sort of you know, ideals as a parent. And we just hear like one thing after another about his life spiraling. And she's like, and that's why you tried to kill yourself. And he's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> and we go to the next thing and the next thing. And it's such a funny scene. It's very a serious man. Yes, it oh, yeah. is. It's beautifully restrained Carell too, which is really nice. I know this is really before we get like eternally goofy Carell. Like this mm-hmm. is like sort of before he's like really enshrined in amber of like the Michael Scott years mm-hmm. so I really like the tenor that we get from Steve Carell in this but I also really resonate with this dinner scene where they're telling him about why he tried to kill himself I <laughs> because like all three of us we were only children and mm-hmm. then I eventually was not but um for like many years <laughs> we're all technically not actually only children but in reality right. we are right yes yeah. exactly. right exactly like you you both have siblings older than you I have a sibling that's like much younger than me mm-hmm. and like I remember being like the only kid at the dinner table yes. and there's all of this like very adult talk going on and you're like totally. well I am part of this family I do want to know what's going on and then like the tension between like well what do we tell you? What do I not tell you? What does it mean to protect you from like the truth? What does it mean yeah. to include you in, you know, the goings on, like in the bowels of our family, you know? Yeah. And I just knew way too much from a <laughs> very early age, like what was going on with everybody, because it's like they kind of just like forget you're a kid for a little mm-hmm. while. And then occasionally you're like, wait a second, we shouldn't tell her that. And then they're like, come on, she's going to find out anyways, you know? They do, yeah. I was talking to my mom about this yesterday and about her saying like, well, this is something I feel like you'll have a strong negative reaction to because in the past you have. And I was like, well, I was a teenager at the times you're talking about. She's like, oh, yeah. And her thing was like, you were always so articulate. It was hard to remember how young you were. And it's like, Yes, I guess you just kind of always thought I was 35 in a way because like also adults need other people to converse with. And if I think that if they don't have enough people available, they'll just kind of look at a articulate child and be like, ah, you're fine. This will do. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, like, Mm -hmm. you know, going over to your friend's house and then you're the one that like ends up comforting your mom's friend who's like going through the divorce and you're like here have a little more rosé sherry (laughs) (laughs) so our ragtag family gets on the road and the first thing that happens is that they fuck up the clutch somehow so they have to start the car by either coasting down a hill or pushing it which is great 
and which brings us our iconic image of the family, like all having to run and jump into the bus like it's a railroad car, like they're Dottie and Kit in a league of their own. Things are going well. They're in kind of like a great mood after having to chase their own bus. After a long conversation, a beautiful kind of like black box play like conversation they stop at a gas station and Steve Carell, I'm just going to call him Steve Carell, goes in to get some porn for grandpa, who's like, make sure it's nasty. I don't want that airbrush shit. <laughs> yeah. That's not what Alan Arkin sounds like, but that's my grandpa voice. And it's kind of like this moment, you're kind of like lulled into a feeling of safety. People are laughing. It's going well. But then Steve Carell's grad student who's got a fucking polo shirt on, is at the very gas station. What are the odds, I ask you? With the second foremost Proust scholar in the car who's just been awarded a genius grant. And they're in a convertible, for God's sake. Yeah. And they get and he gets back in the convertible after running into Steve Carell buying his old school porno, and they're laughing and full of life and love, and it's simply too much. Simultaneous to this, the uh, William H. Macy plot line is playing out. Uh, <laughs> happening there. Oh, he is um, realizing a quick aside about Greg Kinnear as a character is earlier we get that Greg Kinnear is trying to psychologically bully his daughter into not having ice cream. Oh my God, I didn't talk oh, about this I can't scene. believe we forgot this that. Is, this is one of the scariest scenes ever committed to film, in my opinion. Yeah, they're they're out to a like a Denny's style restaurant, and it's actually so perfect to some of the meals I remember having as a kid out because we rarely went out. And she doesn't ask like what she can have; she asks what dollar amount they should keep, she should keep it under. Yeah, totally. Which was like extremely real. She's told she can keep it under four dollars, and she decides to get waffles a la Modi, so um, which which she learns means comes with ice cream. Mm. Do you, Car- Carolyn? Why don't you recap this scene? What happens at the diner? Well, so Greg Kinnear, in his slimy, slimy way, which he thinks he's being helpful because he wants to encourage Olive to like be the best. He wants to encourage her to be a winner. <laughs> And in his way of doing this, he tells her, well, Mm -hmm. ice cream comes from animal fats. And if you eat this, you might yourself get fat. And everybody else at the table is like begging him not to say this. Like, please don't say this. Like, you can't like you should not say this. But he like can't help himself. (sighs) And it's so sad because you see Olive like encountering for the first time this very loaded emotional language about food and you just like as somebody who's been alive in the world and like has been internalizing these Mm -hmm. what he thinks is like a small thing but it's not a small thing it's like it's just so hard to see because you're like oh before this like she just Mm -hmm. she was so happy about the ice cream she was so excited about the ice cream and then you see her like become conflicted and everybody else is telling her to get the ice cream and her dad is like don't eat the ice cream and she's like oh shit now my decision is all of a sudden politicized in this family it means something rather than just getting ice cream Mm -hmm. so eventually she orders and long story short everybody else is like very sweet and very um, encouraging. And they're like, well, I want some. And so Paul Dano and Steve Carell, and they're like eating it and they're being like the best gunkles ever and just eating eating the ice cream. And she's like, wait, don't eat all of it. Let me have some. And it's it's just very sweet that she at least like gets that. But you know that that's, that's going to affect her for the rest of her life. Right, because we later have her express to her grandfather that she doesn't want to become a loser because her father hates losers and she doesn't want to lose her father's love. And so like that motivation is tied to everything that he thinks a loser would do or not do. Alan Arkin, God, uh, RIP Alan Arkin, but like this is a character I've appreciated for a long time because it's like zany, loud, brash, tells it like it is grandpa. But like, I didn't realize, I think, until these last goes in this movie, how sweet this character really is. is. And like how extremely loving and there for this child who lives with these fucked up parents mm-hmm. is. <laughs> and this is what he won an Oscar for. I believe so. Very well deserved. 
And so meanwhile, sorry, that was an aside to get to the fact that Greg Kinnear or like a, a backtrack to get to the fact that Greg Kinnear now at this part in the movie is trying to get to the bottom of whether or not this book that he's been guaranteed will absolutely sell is selling. Uh, he chases down his agent who's played by Brian Cranston. I had forgotten that that happened. We have two Breaking Bad characters in this movie. Well, and this the house they live in feels like it's down the street from the Walter White. Well, and it's in Albuquerque. Right. It's a, Yeah, exactly. It's an Albuquerque joint. He gets a hold of his agent. It is revealed that the book has not sold. It sounds like, based on Tony Collette's response, that it's not just been a matter of like, this book is definitely going to sell, but they've spent a lot of their time and resources, or Greg Kinnear has spent a lot of their time and resources on making this book something that the family's future is banking on. And it sounds like that is not going to happen. And now there is tension. So yeah, we see Greg Kinnear breaking a bit as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, to get back to the diner scene for a second, like I think this is an incredible scene. And it really it, it shows Greg Kinnear's character in such a big way and shows like somebody with the best intentions they can offer based on the rules they've set up for themselves, like creating the memory that you know Olive is going to be talking about in therapy in several years where her body became an obstacle to her father's love. Yeah. Or where she learned it was a potential obstacle to that. And like the like quiet in that scene, the fact that like nobody raises their voice, but this is like this Yalta moment. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it does a great job showing how things that happen in families are important on the scale of like key points in the Cold War, because that's what Mm. families are to the people who live in them. And then, yeah, the way it gets turned around is really beautiful. It's just like it's like this huge emotional scene that never gets loud. And I love how in the quiet moments you can hear the background music in this restaurant and it feels like tinny, like you're about to pass out. Yeah. Oh, my God. So Greg Kinnear like gets a dirt bike from a neighborhood youth that night when they check into their motel and like goes to the spa resort where Brian Cranston is staying or I guess the fancy hotel and it's like we got to make this right and Brian Cranston is like no and kind of I guess makes clear that Greg Kinnear is a loser because he can't sell his nine steps if he's some random guy right but you know is it makes sense as an argument and yet so many random guys sell steps at this point but yeah they he specifically says it's not the steps it's you you're the problem There's nothing worse that Greg Kinnear could possibly hear in that moment. (laughs) And also just kind of relating this back to the diner scene earlier at the dinner, earlier at dinner at their home, when they're talking about why Frank tried to kill himself, why Steve Mm -hmm. Carell tried to kill himself. Greg Kinnear says something along the lines of like, Frank gave up on himself. Yeah. I think like that's like interesting language to use because Greg Kinnear is obviously like, He's at this crossroads now. He's like, am I going to give up on myself or am I not? And he's also like freaking out about like, I mean, is like you eating ice cream, giving up on yourself. You know what I mean? Like he, he, he relates everything to believing in yourself or giving up. You know, it's like this very binary thing. Totally. And he's doing that. He's doing that thing that like we see so much of in the culture of I don't know, just like the narratives we tell ourselves and then prescribe to everyone around us that makes us think that like if we do, if we do a very specific sort of disciplined things, nothing is going to go wrong. Yeah, that's why those giant water bottles exist that say like, keep going. (laughs) And then sell the promise that it's like, look, like this, you know, if you just do things the right way or if you if you have the right attitude or whatever, like you're not going to experience some tremendous accidental calamity or systemic calamity Mm -hmm. and then you know you start to internalize it and then make everyone else encounter your belief that that is their reality as well which is fundamentally what religion is and i guess if we live in in a secular way we just have to apply that logic to other random stuff yes absolutely i really relate to that impulse because i think even though i wish i wasn't like this and i i do feel like i'm trying to work on it i do come from a family and also i believe that like if i just get all of this done if i like 
to-do list the shit out of my life if I like micromanage and like control every like little variable that's going on then like success will come for me and like things will not go wrong and obviously that's like nuts and like not true whatsoever I'm constantly feeling the friction of that where it's like but I did everything right. Why is this not working? Yeah. I think like some of the moments of freedom I've experienced in the last few years has been when I've like tried to let go of that and be like putting mm. a little bit more purpose on like, why am I doing this instead of like, I need to do this to like make sure that everything is okay. Yeah. I feel like you have to get a sense of control from somewhere or maybe you don't. I don't know. I don't know. That's like a kind of a good question. Like, do you need a sense of control? Like, yeah. Does there come a point at what, like, maybe do you need that some amount of your life and then a point comes where you can be like, I don't need that. One certainty is you will never have it. And the other certainty is, or the like false certainty is like, maybe if I do the right thing, I'll get it. And I feel like all of human history is coming up against that realization. Mm. <laughs> But maybe that's what Alan Arkin's character has going for him, that he, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that he's just like fully in the flow current of like whatever happens, happens. This feels actually like a movie where like different philosophical belief systems are taking a road mm-hmm. trip together. Yeah, exactly. They're all exactly. I was really hoping that we could talk more about this, especially in context of Paul Dano's character. Mm-hmm. Like I want to have like a very dedicated like philosophical chapter mm-hmm. conversation um, but I want to know what happens in the movie next. <laughs> what happens in the movie? Okay, so they they get to the hotel. They get to their motel um, where they're spending the night. Greg Kinnear goes off on his trip to try and get Stan Grossman to change his mind, which he is not able to do. And Olive has a really lovely moment with Grandpa where she asks if she's pretty. And she says he says she's the most beautiful girl in the world, which is what you should say. I agree. Because it's always true to the person saying it. And she asks if she's a loser because this is her big... I mean, Caroline, I feel like you remember this scene better than I do because you've seen it more than the one time. What what kind of happens here? This feels like an important moment. Mm. It's like very clear that like Grandpa Alan Arkin provides safety emotionally for her. So she feels like safe enough to ask like this big pressing question you know which is like am I yeah I don't want to be a loser like am I pretty like can I do this which is essentially Mm -hmm. what she's asking like can I be a beauty queen I think like the unspoken Mm -hmm. thing about this from the outset of the movie is like Abigail Breslin slash like her character she's obviously like she's a gorgeous kid she's like a perfectly amazing kid and she's beautiful but she's also like a normal kid, you know, mm-hmm. and all of these other beauty pageant girls are like, you know, their hair is higher, you know, trying to reach God. And, you know, they've got spray tans and like they're it's like this different genre of. They're just like haunting children. Right. <laughs> not, not the children themselves, but like the way that they're made in this movie. Well, they're made up to look like little dolls. So there's something uncanny about it. Right. Exactly. And so there's also the question that like I think every little girl asks is like, can I be a beauty queen? Like, am I like the other girls? Am I like the girls that I want to be like? Am Mm -hmm. I like these other women that I look up to? Mm -hmm. Alan Arkin just responds perfectly. Like he does, he says all of the right things. He's like comforting and he's there for her. And he, 10 out of 10, no notes. And his, the takeaway of what he says ultimately is essentially like the journey is the destination, which is like, I feel like an important, thing that the earlier we learn it the better which you know ultimately she's saying like can I be a beauty queen and he's like don't quit because it's like the quitting that is potentially the problem the point for him is that she like participates and tries and engages in this journey and like it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a beauty queen but it definitely means that like you're going to try something out that that you're interested in and I I love that I love that he gives that to her yeah yeah it's a really special scene and so in the night uh, grandpa dies because his goal was to have as much fun as possible. And apparently he just wore his little old heart out. It's a pretty good way to go, especially having just given great advice and had a great like grandpaing moment. Mm-hmm. And then they're faced with the question of how are they going to deal with grandpa's body? Because they have to get to the pageant today at three. And I feel like this is something that would have seemed kind of like an over the top 
plot to me when this movie first came out. And now that I realize that when you as you get older, especially people just die with incredible frequency, you're just like, yeah, this is what happens. You're like trying to get your kid to the pageant, but grandpa's dead and you have to deal with his corpse. Mm. They do kind of the only thing they can do and get to the pageant on time, which is to wheel his corpse out of the hospital and stick it in the back of the van. But then they get pulled over <laughs> by Breaking Bad's own Hank. <laughs> Dean Norris. This scene is so ridiculous and so funny. Can you talk about this scene, Alex? Yeah, they get pulled over and we think that Dean Norris is going to find the body in the back of the, the Volkswagen bus. Greg Kinnear is summoned back to the back of the bus uh, to go see what's going on. He pulls them over because their horn is broken, by the way, and it yes. sounds like a bleating lamb. <laughs> yes, it does, on its way to slaughter in an A24 movie. <laughs> it. <laughs> He's summoned to the back to go see what the problem is, and Dean Norris has found all of the porn magazines that he's trying really hard to relate with Greg Kinnear about because he loves porn. And he's like, that's nice. You got a beautiful family. You got a little of this on the side. <laughs> <laughs> and they go through the porn mags and look at the different ones that he offers his commentary on. And the last one, the, the gay magazine is cop themed, which is very funny. And then that's their time to split from each other. And then Dean Norris is on his way and they're on their Huzzah. way. The other thing that I was thinking about just the, the hospital scene like Steve Carell, as we know, like tried to like attempted suicide earlier in the movie and like he gets to see death happen and he gets to see how it like affects all of the rest of the family members. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's sort of a turning moment for him where it's like he's obviously like still depressed, but it's like he he sees how it affects all of the family members, you know? Mm hmm. Right. I can't remember if it's after the hospital, but it feels significant that when they're in the hotel, Paul Dano writes on yeah. his pad to not kill himself. And Steve Carell says, I wouldn't do that to yeah. you. Yeah. Not on your watch, which is very, very yeah. nice. Also, he's like, <laughs> we haven't done nothing that matters, but burned into my mind for whatever reason is when Steve Carell says, you're not talking because of Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> such a good line read <laughs> so good <laughs> yeah and so we're on the road with grandpa we've evaded the cop problem but olive has taken these little eye tests from when they were waiting at the hospital and we didn't think they would be important did we but they are yeah but she's playing with them and showing them to paul dano and they learn that he's colorblind and Steve Carell is like, if you're colorblind, you can't fly jets because he has taken a vow of silence until he gets into the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And Paul Dano needs to have a big reaction. And they pull the car over and he like runs into a field and breaks his vow of silence with the word fuck, I think, which is yeah. really, you know, probably the best way to do it. The way that he screams is... Like, actually, what's going on in my brain 24-7 all of the time, but it just, like, never <laughs> comes out. And just, mm -hmm. the like, the cathartic nature of, like, you've had this goal, you've been so intense about this goal, like, you're doing every, like, similarly, like, you're doing everything right, like, you are being structured, you're doing X, Y, and Z, you're dedicated. And then just to have it taken away from you, it's just such a specific kind of grief, and he acts this out so well. It's like... I think like this is the moment that everybody was like, all right, Paul Dano, he's going to work forever. <laughs> yeah, God. And it is like and he has not said anything for so long. So I feel like there's a lot of suspense about like what's going on inside of him. He has this whole kind of screaming soliloquy about how much he hates his family. But it's clear that it's like it's a feeling of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And he calls them a family of losers, right? He calls them all losers. So our theme comes back. The other thing that I love about this scene is like Tony Collette's like sweating it out, being like, well, should we go talk to him? Should we go like go talk to him, Greg? Like, you know, make him feel better. Go say something to him as he's like processing this like huge grief. And the thing that makes Paul Dana's character like ready to move on and like like actually process this grief is. Abigail Breslin comes over and he just she just lays her head on his shoulder and is 
like just there for him and you know yeah that kind of grief like you can't say anything about that you know it's like there's nothing that any of them could have said to make him feel better you just have to like be there for him mm-hmm. and it's a fun mirror because the whole prior like because of a lot of what sarah just said about how expressive his face is he's really there for her mm-hmm. So much of the time in the lead up without ever saying anything to her. Obviously, he writes some stuff down on the pad sometimes, but like he's like really there. He's kind of the only person who's there for her along with grandpa, excuse me. And then she comes and does the same. And like in a second, he's like, all right, I'm coming. (laughs) Which I thought was very funny. Yeah, it's so sweet. Yeah. And I'll also say that like when she goes down to comfort him, she's wearing these little red cowboy boots. Oh, my God. So great. Oh, I love those boots so much. She has to like carefully pick her way down a hill and then when he's sufficiently able to go back up to the van he carries her up the hill he picks her up it's so cute oh my god he's a good brother he's a very good brother and then they get finally to the national little miss sunshine pageant which is happening at a shitty convention hotel in redondo beach where all of the most dramatic moments of one's life tend to occur <laughs> and so they rush in. It's like the gimme some lovin' sequence in Notting Hill. Well, first we see Steve Carell's amazing little run, which is kind of like the guy it's in so Duel. good. Iconic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Greg Kinnear has to use all of his motivational speaking skills to charm the sparkle motion lady. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And they, they succeed. They get all of added to the list. And then Paul Dano and his uncle are taking in the pageanteering culture and it's wigging them out so they go and have a talk by the beach which solves one of the problems that feels baked into this movie which is that Steve Carell is the world's foremost Proust scholar but so few people have actually read Proust that it's hard to know how that could be thematically related right and he basically acknowledges that he's like you know nobody reads Proust and it's like yeah especially me (laughs) (laughs) basically gives Paul Dano this the beautiful um Gunkel speech which yeah the core of the argument is basically that Proust was like you know like the 20 years I spent writing that book that basically nobody reads were the best years of my life because that was where I grew into the person that I am and the happy years of my life. Um, right. <laughs> which is basically like, I don't know. I, I love as an argument because it's not sugarcoating it. And it's clearly by someone who just has had a massive downward spiral that ended him up in a motel a la a serious man. Right. Steve Carell at this moment has also just seen a full page ad in like a newspaper for Larry Sugarman's new book. Oh my God. Understanding yeah. Proust, which names him the foremost Proust scholar. So the one right. thing he had left, he doesn't have anymore. Aww. He's not even the foremost Proust scholar. Yeah. And so it feels like he's getting advice from somebody who is like in a period of like as much tumultuousness as a teenager like this is some period of like radical destruction and growth for him Mm -hmm. and that it's not trying to say like no it's fine these are the best years of your life he's like no yeah these years are terrible actually you're Mm -hmm. becoming who you are through them right and he's reminding himself too because he's learning how to not want to die again or learning what to do when he wants to die i should say because you kind of don't learn how to not want to die i guess you learn how to navigate it that's so so true (laughs) Well, I've heard that if you take ketamine, you learn how to not want to die. But oh. I don't know if that's true. Hmm. I've heard that there's nine steps. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't be a loser. <laughs> so, Alex, you studied philosophy in college. You were a philosophy major, hilariously. Sure. Um, <laughs> can you give us like a little Nietzsche 101 to help better understand Paul Dano. I, I can I can in being a kid who read it a little bit and when I was 15, but Nietzsche wasn't in my philosophy diet when I was in college, but like sort of like a cliff notes version of like how people experience and engage Nietzsche in their teens is they experience him as often often it's tied to like a particular form of like teen brand nihilism. Mm-hmm. Often it's the first like adult that young people read who reflects back to them that they're feeling that everything is absurd in one way or another. Mm -hmm. 
that we take the wrong thing seriously, who was a, a serious person who reflected back to you the seriousness of how unserious everything is. Mm. Well, so it's obvious like why Paul Dano's character is like feeling connected to Nisha. But then I similarly was like, I have never read any Proust whatsoever. Like, I don't know anything about it. But I like looked it up and the first Proust quote that comes up when you Google it is, Love is not vain because it is frustrated, but because it is fulfilled. The people we love turn to ashes when we possess them, which I love that. That's great. Hmm. All I know about Proust had, a, I think, a seven-volume novel called Remembrance of Things Past, mm-hmm. although I think it's more literally translated in, as In Search of Lost Time. It's about a man that eats a cookie and remembers seven whole books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason that I bring that up is like, what do you make of like the the screenplay of this is so well written and it's the the lines are so economically conveyed. Like there's a reason that they picked these two figures for these two characters to be like obsessed with. Hmm. I really think that Paul Dano and Steve Carell, like they feel like the most connected maybe of all of the characters. Mm-hmm. They're very similar, and I think they know that about each other, like, in that they, like, dive fully into, like, being obsessed with these writers. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, what you think about, like, why these writers? I mean, I feel like Proust as a choice is, like, that, I don't know, that he he explains it in some helpful ways in that soliloquy, which you can then kind of extrapolate through the movie, which I love a movie that, like, makes its themes available to you without you having to go on brainy quote. (laughs) And that Proust was somebody who, like, according to the standards of the time, like, never really got his life started and, like, pursued some, like, was the ultimate loser and, like, poured all his energy into something whose value was not validated by anyone who was alive when he was. And most people alive after his death and that like the Greg Kinnear approach to things is like for you to be a winner, everyone has to know that you're a winner and you have to be talking the entire time. I don't know that it's like the Proustian life is like a little bit the academic life that we're getting from Steve Carell, where he's like he's existing at the margins of this family and of the world that he used to be in because he lost his job and like. If you've lost a job in academia, there's kind of nothing you can do aside from being a ghostbuster. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I don't really know anything about Nietzsche, except that he was like, he had that one quote that's in a lot of um, 80s horror movies, which is that when you gaze too long into the abyss, the abyss gazes back into you. Mm. And that's what we have in Paul (laughs) Dan. He's an abyss gazer. Yeah. So the moment has arrived. It is a little Miss Sunshine pageant. And so we're watching Abigail Breslin, our Olive, get prepared, get in the zone. Olive seems to be getting psyched out, but she's like, no, I'm doing it. And meanwhile, the men in her family are watching the talent portion, which is like very intense. One girl has a big tumbling pass. There's a kid who yodels. Mm -hmm. Everyone is like kind of, a you know, in walking doll garb. Her dad is like, I don't know if we should let Olive do this. This is terrible. And her brother, who is talking now, also doesn't want to let her do it. Because he, what does he say? He's like, if we let these people judge her. he's. I think he just says, I don't want these people to judge her. Like, I don't want. Yeah. He's not just talking about, like, in the contest. He's, like, talking about just generally, like, like these are not the right people for Olive to be taking in their opinion because this Mm -hmm. is absurd and like ridiculous and not any litmus of like talent necessarily, you know? Yeah. But she does get out there and perform and she dedicates her performance to her grandpa who taught her these moves. And (laughs) the MC says, and where's your grandpa now? And she says, in the trunk of our car. (laughs) And they're like, whatever, dance, little girl. And so she dances to super freak and then it turns out that she's doing a strip number and this is what she's been practicing with grandpa all this time and she's got tearaway pants and everything oh my gosh and it is such a controversial number that there are walkouts people are leaving they're trying to get her off the stage people start heckling her one one thing i want to note that i didn't i've only noticed this time is earlier before we get the super freak number she talks to miss california oh, yeah. but the um significance i think is is so beautiful throughout because she olive asks her if she 
likes ice cream oh, yeah. you know which is like mm-hmm. a throwback to the beginning and she's so supportive and talks about all the ice creams that she likes which is really lovely but it comes back to because while everyone is freaking out the only audience member we see is supportive of Olive and loving this routine is Miss California, who's just like gleefully cheering the entire time while all the other adults are being terrible. And I just thought that that was really lovely that she had like a non-creepy advocate on her side. Yeah. And it's also Miss California who she had seen competing at the in like one of the very first scenes. Mm. She was watching Miss U.S. She was watching Miss USA and uh, Miss Louisiana one originally, but Miss California had been competing. And like that's who she wants to be like. Oh, that's and so, so nice. she gets to have that affirmation from her, which is which is very sweet. That's so nice. And so she's she's doing her performance. The demand has come from the top, from Sparkle Motion Lady, to get her off the stage, and her family swarms the stage, and they all dance with her together triumphantly, including Greg Kinnear. Mm-hmm. And then the cops come, and they <laughs> basically are told. You can go, but you can never be in a pageant in the state of California ever again. <laughs> ever. ever. Oh, and then Steve Carell says, I think we can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they drive off into, I guess not the sunset, because they're going east. They drive away from the sunset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the end. Little Miss Sunshine. Wow. What a great movie. I guess I my question for you, Carolyn, because this is something you've loved for a long time, is like, Based on your love for it, because like I remember this movie, this movie was huge it was. in its own way. Like it's really remarkable how long people talked about it, how big of a dent it made in the zeitgeist. I would compare it to like Silver Linings Playbook, I guess, although I think that it's much better mm-hmm. and became part of the culture in a big way. And I wonder why you think that this resonated um, the way that it did. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not totally sure other than just the obvious points of its sweetness. And Americans are always trying to grapple with winning and losing in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is something to that. And at least personally within my own life, like I come from like a family that is like very focused on high achieving. And Mm -hmm. I think just like any sort of media that let me see families be loving in that way even though they're like not necessarily nailing it all of the time like that that felt very comforting to me you know I mean that's a theme that comes up often enough in American movies that it kind of I'm a big believer in the idea that the media we make or that succeeds kind of shows where our priorities are regardless of whether we're succeeding in executing them Mm -hmm. as a country totally and this idea I mean this is such a bad news bears ending where it's like (laughs) <laughs> she like not only does she not win but like she's dragged off the stage <laughs> yeah. like people walk out of her performance it's like she's screening gummo she's prohibited from ever competing again yeah she's banned from the state of california <laughs> probably the first time that's happened to a seven-year-old girl yeah that's next level that's like taking bad news bears to another level yeah it's true they out bet it's they should be called the little miss sunshine ending but like the point of it is that her family was was in their with her and that it feels like they saw what they had to offer each other. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there are a lot of movies where they're like, it's a dysfunctional family. And it's like, do you understand what a dysfunctional family is? Because it's not just that everyone is a character. Right. It's that like, we kind of understand where the dysfunction is coming from. And I feel like everyone is operating from their own set of intentions and their own belief system and like not being able to hear each other or see each other at crucial moments. And it feels mm-hmm. like in some ways this is about this family going on a journey where they're forced to see each other and to open up to each other and to kind of empathize with each other and and grow toward each other because they're kind of put through a series of zany circumstances that force them to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I know the thing that made watching it this time interesting, knowing that this is something we're going to talk about because it's something that is interesting and important to you. And it's a movie that's resonated with you for a long time is that I know that like there have certainly been with regard to you, you know, cultivating a you are a musician and sort of you work work towards greatness in your pursuit of music. And there have been ways that like you're families push towards being really great at something have been beneficial. And there are certainly also places where it can feel triggering when it's like, if I'm not being perfect, 
it's like the thing where she says, like, I don't want to be a loser because my dad doesn't love losers. Mm -hmm. And so it can feel sometimes like if you don't hit what you think is the greatness that you think that you should hit, it can feel like you're failing on a level beyond just whatever you're setting out to do. And I can appreciate watching this because we kind of get to see that the person who is setting the standard for perfection, Greg Kinnear, is not setting that standard from the most solid foundation. Totally. That's a great point. <laughs> it's nice to be reminded. Right. It's such an arbitrary thing, you know, what people's idea of success is or perfection or, and growing up, it was, we just want you to be happy. We want you to have opportunities. We want you to like be able to thrive and succeed in whatever. And it's coming from a good place. People would ask me like, oh, well, are you going to be a musician? Like, are you going to go into the family business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In response to that, well, she can do whatever she wants as long as she's like really, really into it. And like really like as long as she's like so passionate about it that nothing else, you know, it's like you have to be 100 percent into like whatever it is that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And like the subtext that I interpreted that as is like you can do whatever you want as long as you're the best at it mm -hmm. I don't know like I think I've I've developed I don't know this sort of like muscle within my body where it's like I can't just do things casually like at all like I just have to and I'm not the best at anything really like I I think like I there's a lot of things that I'm very passionate about and that I love doing and I love making I think it's well it's interesting because I know that this is a standard that you both were raised with in one way or another and I grew up in like rural Maine where expectation was like don't Guys, don't get pregnant before you're 18. You have to be the best at not dying in rural Maine. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. And so seeing the, you know, if you told me about these issues when I was younger, I don't think I would believe that they would lead to lasting issues. Yeah. But I, I certainly have, you know, observed it that I think whether or not you interpret this consciously, that one who's dealing with this interprets this consciously, it can feel like every slip or every personal failure or whatever results in one way or another to losing the love of a parent. Yes, Alex, it does. And God doesn't <laughs> love losers, you know. <laughs> and and that creates an anxiety around everything. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's why I can't go to the car wash. What if I can't get my car in the tracks? What then? That is genuinely <laughs> stressful, though. It, thank you. <laughs> I love how much of this quiet debate inside so many families it feels like this movie makes explicit and just shows i don't know you don't want a family of winners you know who's a family of winners the kennedys yeah Ooh, <laughs> great point and yeah it is like this kind of ongoing question because i mean my parents also like i think their definition of success is to be happy but to them to be happy is to be successful you know what i mean mm -hmm. you can't really uncouple that necessarily it's like an ongoing question, like in my self-reflection and therapy and things like that. Like, what does it mean to be successful and what does it mean? Mm -hmm. Like, what does a successful, happy life where you feel like you're winning? What would that actually look like if you're taking it from like a holistic standpoint? And like that involves mm -hmm. more things like making sure you have community, making sure that you have like access to fulfilling work and like access to like good food and good weather and things like that rather than just being like, I am going to be the foremost Proust scholar. Carolyn, I think you kind of nailed the like why Proust question. Also, it's like somewhat arbitrary because really what we're seeing is the life of someone who believed maybe on some level that if they became the best at what they do, they would be happy. And that is very clearly not the case. Right. With Proust and with uh, Steve Carell. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They became number one. Shouldn't they be happy? Shouldn't it all come together? Just this might be too big of a question, but I'm curious. What is both of your definitions of success? Mine is having a sense of contentment on your journey. Mm -hmm. That requires constant reexamination and recalibration a lot of the time. It is certainly not any specific achievement because time and space move and it will change immediately. So you have to kind of be, 
you know, that you're going in some direction or content with the fact that you're not going in a particular direction at the moment, but you'll eventually go in a direction and that on your way to that place, you will also be pursuing some level of contentment. Mm -hmm. I think it's having a drinks fridge. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I do think that in some way, but yeah, Alex, I agree with you. And I feel like I would describe that as like being able to be good company for yourself. Yeah, oh, partly. That's, nice. that's a good way to say because it. I don't know if you see the things that you work for as like a banquet that you have like gotten the ingredients for and cooked and, and laid out, then like the question then is, are you able to eat it? Mm, yeah. yeah. What's yours, Caroline? I think my definition of a success is having the ability to interface in a helpful and healthy way with community, having access and interaction with art and having really good bread around most of the time (laughs) (laughs) to eat the center out of yes we're gonna get you a pied a terre above ken's artisan bread in portland (laughs) yes oh my god that would be so nice imagine oh my god should we do the daddy question yeah let's do it we know that william h macy is a father (laughs) Who, in your view, is the daddy? My daddy is Paul Dano, I think. Um, Paul Dano. I'm not. I always called him Paul Dano growing up, mostly because I was very invested in his well-being when I was in middle school. Because I was like, this guy's the best. I have a huge crush on him. And then also, like, I think his character is such a good brother, and that's also something that I find like very meaningful within my own life is like I get a lot of meaning out of like trying to be a good sister mm-hmm. and actually my brother was born in 2005 so I've like I remember like watching this movie like while I was like babysitting my little brother hmm. so I think I kind of like internalized some of the the ways hopefully like hopefully I, I tried to internalize some of the ways that he's there for her yeah I'm gonna say Alan Arkin both in this mm-hmm. movie and in general because he had a long and amazing career. I really, I love his character in this. I feel like you have to, you have to have elders around partly because they've been around enough to stop giving a fuck about the stuff that sometimes your parents are busying themselves with (laughs) and believe will save them. Totally. Yeah. It's a very special bond and also a good death that we get for him in this movie. (laughs) And I love it when characters get a good death. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say Gunkle. Uh, Gunkle Steve. Gunkle Steve. Gunkle Corral. <laughs> Gunkle Steve is my daddy in this movie, specifically because he realizes something that may lead to his growth while pointing something out to somebody else who needs it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think his Proust speech to Paul Dano is for Paul Dano first, but might actually be a more consequential and important reminder to himself. And his ability to process what Proust means to him is when he's presenting it to somebody who needs it the most, and it turns out he might be that somebody. Mm. That's a plot point that I recognize in my own life. (laughs) Are you that somebody? (laughs) I feel like our show is the gunkle to a lot of the listeners. We're trying. And we, in the process of trying to entertain, uh, often accidentally learn things for and about ourselves along the Mm -hmm. way. But it's certainly been a plot point in me being a gunkle for many of the folks in my life. Often because I want to be that to the people who are in my life, but because I don't always know how to be that for myself. Mm -hmm. And it turns into, you often sometimes get there by proxy. Mm -hmm. No, that's so sweet. This is a movie about the importance of extended family and you know, an execution found family as well, because it's about needing multiple people to turn to, you know, in your life who are going to see things differently from each other and kind of together form the whole of what you need. For sure. I was just going to say, like, I want to give like a special honorary mention to Olive when she's doing her routine, because like when Greg Kinnear is like actively fighting one of the security guards, she's still like dancing in the background. Yeah. And I I love love that that so much because she's just like, I got to keep going. It's so sweet. She really kills it. And she's like half going to see if she should continue. And they're like, keep going. And then she goes, (laughs) (laughs) so funny yeah oh 
masterfully directed. Maybe we all have the spirit of a seven-year-old with a goal. Yes. <laughs> Viva la uncle. Viva la uh. uncle. All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Carolyn Kendrick, for joining us on this week's episode. And then, of course, editing it and then also producing it and making it sound great. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing beats that make our show sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Thank you for leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for finding us at You Are Good Pod on some of the social media places and You Are Good on other social media places. Who knows where we'll be next? It's a brave new world as far as social media is concerned, pun intended. I think that's all for now. Join us next week. Next week, we'll talk about Midsommar and then we have some other great summer movies to round the season out. Thank you for being here. Thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for making this whole thing possible. We appreciate you. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. All right, take care, everybody.